Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn. And in this episode, I'm talking to Liz Alden about love, wanderlust, and sailing around the world. Liz talks about how she and her husband circumnavigated the globe over four years the places they remember as highlights, and how wanderlust and a love for the ocean is something that never leaves us. We also discuss whether such an intense time can bring a couple even closer, and how moments of sheer terror punctuate the calm, sometimes even the boredom, of sailing. We also talk about how COVID changed their plans, how the pandemic shrank our comfort zones, and how we might expand them once again. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Liz today. Liz Alden is the author of the Love and Wanderlust series of romance books, as well as a travel writer. She circumnavigated the world over several years with her husband, which we're talking about today. So welcome, Liz. Thank you, Joe. Oh, I'm excited to talk about this. But first up, tell us a bit more about your history with boats and the water. Did you always want to sail around the world? That's an interesting question because the answer is no. <laughs> I, <laughs> I grew up around the water. My grandfather had a boat business. My dad had a boat business. My uncle had a sailboat. My stepdad had a sailboat. But I wasn't as wildly into it as one would think. But then my dad took my husband for his first sail and my husband was like, oh man, this is really cool. And then he got on the internet and he was looking around and he was like, um, people quit their jobs and go sail around the world. This is something that we could actually do. So let's do it. And, <laughs> and then the timing kind of worked out for us. I was ready to transition out of running what had been my dad's business. So I sold that company and we bought our boat and we took off sailing. Wow. That's so interesting. So your husband didn't have any background, but he was the one who wanted to go. Right. And in most sailing couples, it's kind of the opposite. It tends to be a male dominated activity or a sport. Uh, so a lot of the people we meet out here, it's more of the man who has the background in sailing. And unfortunately, stereotypically, they usually have to convince their partner to go sailing. And so I didn't instigate the conversation, but I was very gung-ho about the idea of traveling around the world on a sailboat. Because of all your skills. And I, I've been wondering about this in terms of the sort of love of the water and almost needing to be near the water. Do you think some people are almost born with a desire to be by water? Is that something you've noticed? I mean, obviously in your family, but in the people you meet, do, do people when they're away from it just long to be back? Yeah, I think there's something, there's just something so different about being on the water versus being on land. And I can understand certainly 
having your feet on the ground and like planting yourself to the ground. But then there's that something different about the way, not even the way the water looks or the way the water feels, but just how you can tell that you're near the water. And it, and as an, a sailor who's come into port, I know that it can be the opposite way too. Like you can smell land when you're approaching, just like you can smell the ocean. So it's this all sensory kind of thing. And it's just two very different feelings for like fully encompassing experience, right? Yeah, I've only done a little bit of sailing, but I live near a canal and a river and I know it's different, but I do feel like I'm happiest when I walk near water uh, and it's got a sort of calming sense but I have no desire to live on it like you do (laughs) (laughs) that's fair it's not for everyone (laughs) no exactly so let's talk about the planning of the trip so your husband says right let's go so how do you figure all that stuff out the first step was to go boat shopping which is an enormous challenge in itself that I think we had no idea what we were getting into at the time Now, seven years later, we can thankfully say that we really like our boat and we're very happy with it. She's obviously been quite seaworthy for the past seven years since we've made it all the way around the world. And she's very comfortable. She is a 44 foot catamaran. So while it's smaller than most people's houses or apartments, it is still very comfortable for a boat. And then after you get the boat figured out, It's actually surprising because a lot of people don't realize how restricted route planning is for sailing. People just think like, oh, well, you know, could you be over in this place by this time? And we're like, well, (laughs) no, not really. We are restricted by storm seasons. So there are certain parts of the world that we don't want to be in for like hurricanes on the Caribbean in the Atlantic. And then we're also fairly restricted by the wind. And as, as sailors, we are basically tropical trade wind sailors. So we're looking for places in the world where the wind goes from east to west. And so that says to us, well, most of the time we're traveling west. And when you're doing a circumnavigation and you're traveling west, then obviously you're going to whack into land at some point. So there are a few narrow places around the world where sailors congregate, like the Panama Canal for one. So the route planning is actually like anybody who plans to circumnavigate is pretty much going the same route, which in itself is really interesting because you end up meeting the same people in one place and then you connect with them again thousands of miles down the line because you're all kind of going the same way. Now, a lot of people might sail from the Caribbean to New Zealand or Australia and call it quits. And so the Indian Ocean really thins out. But the the route is fairly consistent, which was pretty surprising to a lot of people. You don't actually have this whole wide world to transverse. You have a typical route and people might think we're crazy for moving on to a boat and traveling full time. But then we really think the people who go the outside the norm route are really crazy (laughs) and you also you're like a freelance travel writer and there's a big community isn't there there's you can pretty much find out all the information uh from all the community who are already doing it yes exactly there are so many people out there writing about it and that was one of the things 
you know, like I said before that my husband started finding people online who were doing this and who were writing about it. And at the time that we started, there weren't many like YouTube channels that were documenting their adventures. So we were early to the game in doing that. But now there's YouTube channels like crazy who are talking about sailing and going interesting places. And that's really interesting because it's, you know, a whole additional depth level of researching and planning your own route is you get to see people and listen to them in a video and see what they're experiencing in that additional dimension. Well, you better just share your YouTube channel as well. What's <laughs> what's that? Our YouTube channel is called Out Chasing Stars uh, as our website as well. And of course, Facebook and Instagram and all that. So we share and we have shared our entire circumnavigation in video on our YouTube. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. So people can go go and have a look. So well, yes. let's talk about the, the trip itself. What were some of the highlights and the places that you still think about really? Uh, well, our big kind of geographic region that we absolutely fell in love with was the South Pacific. And so when I talk about like our top three places, they are in the South Pacific. French Polynesia is definitely one of the most amazing places we went to. And it has a special place in the heart of sailors because for someone who's circumnavigating, their longest passage is going to be across the Pacific Ocean. And our Pacific crossing was 19 days. And our first landfall was Fatuhiva. In Fatuhiva, you arrive and it's like this, this Jurassic monstrosity of an island it's all jungle it's all lush and you feel like a dinosaur could step out and then you get the culture of the Marquesan people and the natural beauty of the water and the wildlife and that is just it's unbeatable I think in terms of the location we've been to and then in the rest of French Polynesia you have the Tuamotas Islands which are like your sandy tropical atolls with palm trees and then the society islands like Bora Bora and Tahiti, which everybody knows as the idyllic honeymoon vacation. And then further afield in the South Pacific, you get places like Tonga, Niue, Fiji, New Caledonia. And then New Zealand was an absolute highlight for us. The people are so friendly. It's such an interesting country. And it was an opportunity for us to actually, we bought a car and traveled around the country, which was very easy to do. And then another one that really sticks out is the Panama Canal uh, because it's a bottleneck for sailors and it's something that is such a unique experience to go into the canal with these huge cruise ships or cargo ships in your little sailboat and you have usually more crew on board than just you and your partner and you have this marvel of engineering that you get to experience firsthand and it's really fascinating yeah it's so funny because of course the open ocean is just completely different to the the Panama Canal which I've seen pictures of and seen on you know video and things Mm -hmm. I mean it's not a small canal but it's still you know you still have to get it there's lots of things to bump into basically aren't there (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then you're dealing with the cruise ship behind you that's like running a bow thruster and your boat is is moving and shaking and it's just so bizarre it's a totally unique experience 
Yeah, and the other boats going through there, they can be these huge container ships, right? That are like a city. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this little catamaran, that's, that's yep. kind of crazy. We're, we're, and we actually, the way you go through is you raft up with other boats your size. And so you're like, you've got three sailboats rafted together and we're, we all fit like underneath the bow of this giant cargo ship. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, that is mad. Well, yeah, you mentioned there are other boats and also that people go the same way. So I think in some people's minds, uh, sort of, oh, alone on the ocean. But how much were you alone or were you with other people um, quite a lot? When you're out on the ocean doing a passage like the 19-day one from uh, the Galapagos to Fatuhiba, like we did, we're really not seeing anybody. So it is just the two of us for weeks. And we might occasionally see a cargo ship or another sailboat, but it's really few and far between, which is pretty amazing. And then I guess we, we, so we've got to talk about the romance because uh, <laughs> you write this love and wanderlust series of romance books. But uh, is it romantic really to be on a boat for so long <laughs> in a partnership? I think so. And my husband thinks so, which is great. It, it is very interesting to spend so much time with someone. And I, I read recently that this, the average person who has work and who has obligations spends about two and a half hours a day with their partner, including the weekends. And then even when you retire, that only moves up to four hours a day. So we're spending 24-7 a day for the past, the 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the past seven years together. And that's really a lot of time with your partner. But I do find it romantic in a lot of ways. We have such a strong relationship and we have all of these shared experiences together. And we always get to reminisce about these amazing things we've done together and also the hardships. Like we've come out from a lot of hard things on the other side. And it gives us a lot of faith in our relationship and our love. And so you mentioned there the hardships. What are some of the difficulties that you had on the journey? The biggest difficulties usually center around the boat. And I think that we've been at the boat in terms of mechanics. And I think we've been very lucky in our boat. But there are times when something breaks. And that's usually the most stressful uh, I can think of a time when we were flying our spinnaker and I'm going to try not to get too technical, but basically a line got twisted and then a block broke and we were about to chafe through a line and we're panicking and we get the line on just in time. The old line snaps. Our sail is, um, you know, basically fluttering 12 feet off the deck higher than it's supposed to be. And we've got to figure out how to get the sail down in a way that that's not the normal way. And as we're getting it down, the wind catches it in a certain way. And next thing we know, it's overboard. Part of it's overboard and it's heavy and we're getting pulled. We're getting pulled towards the lifelines and we need to worry about the lines not getting caught in our propellers. It's just, that's an example of a very stressful time when things don't go particularly right and you have to react in the moment and figure out how to make it work. And it is life and death. So that's, it's a, it's a lot of stress and it can be very hard. And 
once you've gone through that, you have to try to overcome any residual fears because you know things are going to happen again. But at the same time, you've overcome it and you know how to handle a better scenario or how to handle the scenario better because you have that experience. And that, I mean, as you said, that's a, a physically dangerous situation. Obviously, there's times when only one of you is awake. Mm-hmm. So is, is it sort of lots of, not boredom, but lots of calm followed by acute fear <laughs> for a short amount of time and then back to calm again? Yes, yes. It is extreme stretches of boredom sprinkled with moments of sheer terror. <laughs> <laughs> And what does happen on those times when one of you is awake and the other one's asleep? I mean, obviously you're looking at the ocean and things, but is that a time where you relish the time alone? I think I do. I know my husband does. It's a time to to do the things that we want to do. And, and interestingly, you know, most of the time this is without internet. So that might be hard to imagine for a lot of people is, well, how do you entertain yourself for three weeks without internet? And for me, it's been reading and I am a voracious reader, like a lot of romance readers are. And so I get this time to really plow through books and experience something new, which is interesting being in such a unique location that I'm in when I'm reading these books. So it it can be a contemplative time. We stargaze, we watch the sunset together every night if there's a good sunset. I know my husband is usually really enjoying the sunrise and I'm asleep for that most of the time but we do get a quiet calm that most people never experience especially being away from the internet like that yeah and I guess obviously you've got this romance series but what did you see along the way in terms of different places and relationships that made you want to write the books because obviously there was you and your husband that that's just one way of being romantic what else did you see in terms of romance yes We have met so many couples who met prior to, or met as they were like starting this adventure or in their adventure. So we have friends who met on the dock in the marina and one of them was getting ready to go sailing and invited the other one along. And we have friends who were cruising tropical islands and met one another at a bar. And the person with the sailboat said, well, why don't you come join me for a weekend. And then they fall in love with the boat and fall in love with the person. And there's such a, it's, it's such an interesting mix of like um, falling in love with multiple things at once, because you have to really love the adventure, but then also really, really love the person that you're going to, you're going to commit to all this time to. So you're taking this like huge leap of faith in so many aspects of your life. And I thought, all of that is really interesting, and especially thinking about how you have an intensity in the relationship when you kind of take that leap with someone. And that's a really interesting thing to write about as a romance author. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, even your covers are very evocative <laughs> of, of places. But I, I wondered about, you know, you're, so you're out and you're sailing and how do you know when it's time to stop, whether that's stop in port for a bit longer? Do you feel like, right, it's time to stop for a bit now? Or how do you know when it's time to keep going? Usually we, our hand is pretty forced by the weather. So like I mentioned earlier, there's the storm season. So you have hurricane season in the Atlantic and then cyclone season in the South Pacific. 
And this is something about the circumnavigation that we didn't fully understand before we took off on it, but you are always planning ahead to where you're going to be for the next storm season. So it's not quite as leisurely of sailing as I had expected. You know, once you cross the Pacific, the clock starts and you have a lot of miles to cover to get to New Zealand where you're going to be safe for cyclone season. So there's always kind of that pressure to keep moving and keep ahead of the weather. And we've never left a place and said, oh, well, I did everything I wanted to here. You know, Mm. (laughs) there's just no way to see it and do it all, which is amazing considering how much time we spend in some places. So how long did it take to do the entire circumnavigation? It was four years and three months. Right. So tell us where you are now and how did you come to be back there? Currently, I am in Norfolk, Virginia. We basically, (laughs) this was a bit of a surprise. When COVID hit, we were finishing our circumnavigation. We actually had a party scheduled to cross our wake with friends and family in the Caribbean and that got canceled. We had to divert our course to Antigua where, where we would be let in. And then plans just as for every traveler, COVID washed plans out the window. We ended up going, coming up to the Chesapeake Bay and leaving the boat on the hard for a year. So we came back in June. Well, we came back to the boat in May. We launched it in June and we've been sailing the Chesapeake for the summer and the fall. And now we are in Norfolk waiting for, well, essentially we're waiting to finish some boat projects and then we will head south to the Bahamas. And our intention is to do a bit more of a leisurely season in the Bahamas where we won't have to stay ahead of that storm seasonality and just kind of leisurely explore some islands. And so I I know some people might be thinking, so practically, how does one support uh, a living (laughs) (laughs) in this way? (laughs) Mostly savings. I like to say that I am a digital nomad, but I'm not great at getting paid a lot. I basically write, spend most of my time writing. I write my own novels. I write for sailing magazines. I write for various online publications. And then my husband does investing in addition to some entrepreneurial stuff that he works on. So we do make some money here and there, but mostly we've saved up and that's how we support our lifestyle. Well, obviously there's buying the boat, which Mm -hmm. is expensive, but (laughs) it doesn't seem like once you're going, I mean, you can find cheaper places to moor and it it seems like maybe once you're going, it's not so expensive. Would that be right? Or is it a really expensive way to live basically is the question. Uh, I think it varies a lot. There are certainly people who cruise very cheaply. I I know several people who talk about this publicly and they might sail and spend less than a thousand dollars a month, which is incredibly cheap. Mm. We are definitely not on that kind of a budget. We do though have times like a lot of times in the South Pacific, there just simply aren't marinas to go to. So we anchor everywhere and that costs us nothing. And then things like healthcare, you know, as an American, that's really quite an issue, but our healthcare costs are very low also because we're young and in good health, but we 
have medical care expenses all over the world, and it's amazingly cheaper than we would have here in America. We might be in places where there is no restaurant to eat out in. And so we cook a lot on the boat and we do fish and we do all of these things that make life less expensive than it could be on land for sure. Yeah, it's so interesting. There are a lot, I guess the, the message is there are a lot of different ways to live on on a boat. And yeah. I've been talking to quite a lot of sailors recently, so I've been learning, <laughs> learning a bit more. But when you had that year, obviously COVID shut everything down. What was it like to live back on land? Was it something where you felt like, I think we could carry on doing this? Or were you just desperate to get back on the boat? <laughs> it was it was about 50-50. I think, you know, we're looking forward to another season on the boat. Our plans are very fluid after that. We have none. But we did also enjoy spending some time on land. We we kept it pretty nomadic, actually. We spent time with family and then we picked three different places around the United States and we stayed two months in each place. So we got to explore the country a little bit in a bit of a slow travel way, which definitely helped the wanderlust. I mean, we were exploring some pretty interesting places and also doing some really fun things that we hadn't been able to do in six years, like going skiing and stuff like that. So (laughs) we found a way to make it work. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. So I do love that you use Wanderlust in your series name. And I wondered, what does it, is it a feeling for you or, and how do you think people like us are born with it and will it ever go away? I don't know if we're born with it because well, I'm sure some people are, but to me, I can pinpoint that my dad was very interested in travel and he took us on some really interesting trips when I was younger. And that kind of infused my life with this idea of traveling a little bit. And I think that as our digital lives get more, um, more, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess if you immerse yourself in certain corners of the digital world, then you get to see opportunities. And it's a bit like a fear of missing out. You see these amazing places and you think, oh man, I want to get there. So I don't know to, to me necessarily if it's like, I can't say that I would be unhappy living on land, but I would certainly want to travel a lot. And I think it's just an important part of my life. And I've been super fortunate to be able to have done that for the past seven years. It's interesting though. I I almost feel like COVID has shrunk our world to a point where we all have existed within a, a much smaller boundary. Obviously, we haven't been able to travel so much and well, you've been moving around your country. I mean, we we haven't been able to do that very much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We've had yeah. more restrictions than you have uh, in the USA. But I almost feel like the comfort zone has shrunk. It's become harder to leave you know, for people to even leave their house, let let alone leave the town or the state and kind of go somewhere else. So what are your thoughts or I guess tips on pushing that comfort zone again on, on stepping out of what's normal, or I guess what's become normal? Interesting. I think, and let me just clarify, like when we were traveling around the country, we spent like two months in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we didn't eat out at all. We didn't, we didn't go to any of the museums. It was very much, first of all, I was writing my books, but it was very much a time to be 
focused on that project. And then we also did a lot of hiking. So it was like, we were very concerned about exposing ourselves. So we found ways to keep that wanderlust going without risking ourselves. And I think that was a really nice thing to do. And, and I, I love that when it's possible, COVID has allowed us to change our behavior in certain ways. And I think we've seen a lot more people become outdoorsy about it. And there's more of the like staycationness going on when possible. And I think for someone who's traveled in a lot of faraway places, I do think that's a really interesting turn of, of our lifestyles is how we've changed to kind of get that mentality going a little bit. I don't see a lot of, I, I don't, I think this might be a, first of all, an American thing and also a bubble thing. I am in, ingrained in a community where people are traveling a lot and they always have been. Um, and right or wrong, people are still out here doing that travel thing. And I am not sure I have advice for anyone who's scared to go back at it other than we just have to do what we're comfortable with, right? Yeah, I guess for, for me personally, my comfort zone was much bigger. <laughs> what was comfortable, <laughs> you know, I think what was comfortable before COVID has become more difficult because of the travel restrictions, because yeah. of uh, even here in Europe, oh, and post-Brexit. So I've got post-Brexit, post-pandemic. <laughs> it's much harder to do the things that once were easy. And yeah. it's revisiting the idea that it is worth the difficulties to go places um yeah. I mean like you on your on, on sailing there is a lot of difficulty with a boat <laughs> yeah yeah and so when we were looking at uh let's see about this time last year we our plan had been to go to the Bahamas and with COVID and everything we looked at each other and we were like well we don't have vaccines and sure there are people going to the Bahamas, but that's not a risk that we're willing to take at this time. So that's when we did our exploring the country and living in different places in the United States. So yeah, it's really interesting to talk about people's risk tolerances in that kind of thing. And it is a bit controversial and I, but I'm glad that we sat out a year and waited for our vaccines and said, well, I think, traveling to the Bahamas right now, and, and this is the 2020 right now, was too difficult. So we put it off and waited until we were ready to get moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I actually wonder whether international travellers are much more uh, comfortable with vaccines. Like I, I went to school in Malawi in Africa and mm -hmm. you have your vaccinations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. because if you're travelling in a lot of uh, countries in the world, you really want your vaccinations. You don't uh, have an issue with them. So I think that that's something that perhaps is interesting for travellers. We have a different perspective perhaps on health because in many places it's much more precarious. Yes. And that was part of our transition onto the boat was we went to the, I guess it was like an international health clinic or something. I don't know, but we were, we went and said, all right, these are the countries that we know we're going to go to. And here are some vaccines that have been recommended to us. And so we want to make sure we have documentation for all of our vaccines and then boosters, any boosters that we need, or even new vaccines based on the places that we're going to. So we 
got like the rabies vaccine and hardly anybody has the rabies vaccine around here. But when you're going to places where rabies can be prevalent, like Southeast Asia, you know, yeah, load me up with the rabies vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a problem if you get bit and contract rabies. Oh boy. Oh yeah, exactly. But no, I think that's, it's just such an interesting perspective. And well, fear of getting sick is something that does stop people traveling. And I mean, obviously there's seasickness, which is <laughs> not so much catching as potential for, for anyone. But I mean, there's always issues, aren't there? There are always going to be problems, but yeah. travel to me and obviously to you is, is still worthwhile. But you mentioned um, people's changing behavior. I mean, obviously by seeing a lot of places. Did you see some of the impacts of climate change? And is that something that you think about on, on the boat? Absolutely. We have, I, I want to say like on the ground, but it's more like on the water experiences where we've seen what's happening out there. We sailed near or, or perhaps even in the Pacific garbage patch. And we have been in places where the um, plastics and trash are overwhelming in the water. And we've been in places where overfishing is so bad that the locals are trying to sell us tiny fish to eat, even though they need to be basically imposing size restrictions on what they catch because there's not conservation efforts being put in place for them because they have to feed their family. It's really harrowing to see the kind of changes that are affecting the ocean. And we have been in situations where our props have gotten caught on ghost nets or we've seen abandoned um, fishing devices. And that is just, it's heartbreaking to see. And for us to feel for it to interfere with our ability to cruise, never mind the environmental impact that it has and the way we're seeing this destroyed environment around us is, is really bad. That was one of the hardest things about Southeast Asia for me. I was really excited to go, but the environmental tragedies that are happening, it really opened my eyes to a lot of difficulties that we hadn't seen before. Mm. But in a way, it's important to see those places as well as the sort of beautiful Marquesas and all of that. You know, it's, it's the reality of the world, isn't it? It is. It is. And so I'm glad we saw those things and, and we had those experiences to influence us for the rest of our lives and be more conscious of the decisions that we make. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. There is this issue in the sort of travel industry and those of us who love traveling, which is, should we be traveling? But as you say, it's more about being aware and being mindful and protecting the things we love. And sometimes you don't know what you love until you go and see it, I feel. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe one of your romance novels can be like a eco-warrior. <laughs> <laughs> cleans have, up the Pacific garbage patch romance. I have thought of doing something like that. I've met plenty of people who are doing interesting things in converse, in uh, conservation and, uh, and environmentalism. So we'll see. Thanks for the future book idea, Joe. <laughs> oh, well, it's very romantic to be saving the dolphins. I mean... <laughs> That's fantastic. So, of course, this is the Books and Travel podcast. So what are a few books that you recommend about sailing or travel in general or any romance travel books, of course? Yeah, 
Well, for sailing books, this is interesting because I actually just finished a couple of days ago a book called Love with a Chance of Drowning. And I believe the author's name is Tori DeRoche. And it's so interesting because the book is shockingly similar to my first novel in that an Australian girl comes to the Americas and meets a sailor and crosses the Pacific with him and falls in love which is the plot of my novel, The Hitchhiker in Panama. So In Love with a Chance of Drowning, it's a memoir. And it was a really interesting look at one kind of person that decides that they want to go do this voyage, the kind that we did, and the difficulties they encountered and their experiences were different from ours in some ways, but very similar to ours and others. Uh, I thought the book was funny. And as a sailor, it was wonderful to see Tori's growth from city girl to uh, hearty, salty sailor. (laughs) (laughs) Another great, great memoir is An Embarrassment of Mangoes. And that is set in the Caribbean. And it's a combination of exploration of the Caribbean islands and recipes. So that's really, that's a fun read to explore like one, one specific area of the world. So an embarrassment of mangoes is uh, Caribbean based, which is a lot of fun. In terms of sailing fiction, I (laughs) haven't read much beyond romance. Oh, I'm sorry. An embarrassment of mangoes is by Anne Vanderhoff. I think I forgot to mention that. Um, Beyond beyond nonfiction, the romance books that I've read, a couple of fun ones. There is Private Charter by N.R. Walker, which is a gay romance taking place in Australia in the Sundays, which is a nice steamy read. Trish Dollar is a friend of mine, and she wrote a book called Float Plan, which is another romance novel. And she, Trish also lives on a sailboat. And we haven't had the chance to meet in person, but we're in communities together for sailors who write. And that's a lot of fun. She um, has said some very nice things about my novels. So that's fun. Yeah. So those are some good books to get started with sailing romance and sailing memoirs and really get a taste for the variety. Fantastic. And with your books, if people want to start with them, which one should they, which one should they start with? (laughs) Well, I have a free prequel short story called The Night in Lover's Bay, and that is set in Antigua. Uh, It is a steamy romance. It's available on my website or on any retailer. And then that leads to the rest of the Love and Wonderlust series, which is three novels right now. The Hitchhiker in Panama, The Sailor in Polynesia, and The Second Chance in the Mediterranean. And all three of those books are sailing related. So the first two are uh, Norwegian brothers and the women that they meet. And then the third one is super yacht crew on a sailing yacht in the Mediterranean. Mm, Fantastic. (laughs) Right. So um, where can people find you and your books online? My website is lizalden.com and my books are available on all retailers. And I am on, you know, Instagram and Facebook and have a fun newsletter that goes out once a week and I share I always share a picture with whatever location I'm in. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Liz. That was great. Oh, thanks, Joe. It was a lot of fun. 
Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.